You're listening to part two of the conversation between the droid version of Dr. Jeremy Pierce and Dr. Kevin Tempe talking about how philosophers can contribute to the understanding of disability. Uh, Elizabeth Barnes introduces the terminology uh, between uh, bad difference views of disability and mere difference views of disability. And, and Barnes's work is only oriented at physical disabilities. So she doesn't want, right, she, she recognizes that how we think about other kinds of disabilities might be relevantly different. And at least in the book, uh, Minority Body, she wants to sort of bracket all uh, other kinds of, of intellectual, cognitive, communicative, emotional disabilities to the side. Um, and and the, the heart of the distinction between mere difference and bad difference is whether or not we think that having a disability is intrinsically bad for the person that has it. This is the right, uh, disability as a bad sort of difference or disability as a mere sort of difference, which might be instrumentally bad for people in terms of how we construct our, our society. So Barnes thinks that physical disabilities are mere differences uh, rather than bad differences. So it's easy, I think, here to see how the medical model has often assumed a certain kind of bad difference view of disability. If what is bad is that the person's legs don't work in a way that allows them to walk, then right that that's inherently bad for the person. And so we should try to fix the person or to give them the kind of functioning that they don't otherwise have. Whereas if you think that um, being a paraplegic or, or being a wheelchair user is, is primarily exclusionary in terms of our social practices, right? It might not be that having that kind of bodily difference is bad in and of itself, but it might be bad for you if our society excludes you from certain important kinds of activities on the basis of, uh, of those facts about your body, right? So if you can't get into the courthouse to go vote, for instance, because there's not a ramp or a lift or an elevator or curb cutouts or something like that, right? There are certain kinds of communal goods, uh, goods about living together in, in, in our lives that you're excluded from, but you're excluded not on the basis of the physical disability itself, but the way in which we construct our communities. And, and so I think that a lot of the uh, kinds of literatures that have assumed a medical model of disability actually have something like Barnes's bad difference view of disability in mind, even though technically the two could come apart. And that a lot of the work uh, in favor of social models of disability has been working much uh, uh, more closely with a mere difference view of disability. So you, for instance, the neurodiversity movement, I think is an illustration of an attempt to show that uh, various kinds of, of autism or other neurodivergence uh, might just be mere differences and not inherently bad differences. Right, so the, the idea then is that human diversity is just broad. There are mm -hmm. a lot of different ways of being and they're not inherently bad for you to be one rather than the other sort of like the difference between personality types you got introverts you got extroverts they're just different ways of being so you might have some people who are better at uh, big picture thinking other people who are better at detail oriented thinking and you got people who are more open-ended and fly by the seat of their pants you got people who are much better at being planned and, and organized ahead of time and so on and so um 
at least some of the features involved with something like autism seem like that. They seem pretty, I mean, when you really think about what they are, it's just, well, okay, there might be some different preferences that someone has. There might be some uh, different ways that they want their life to go. They don't care so much. Maybe in, in one particular case, they don't care so much about having to be around people all the time. They're happy to be more solitary or something like that. That that those seem like pretty clear uh, cases where it seems like what the the mere difference view is trying to argue seems right. And you you want to extend that to at least most disabilities. I don't know if you want to say most, but a lot of them, right? Yeah, I think that's true of a lot of disabilities. I actually think that we can't talk about disability as a general kind, uh, as, right. as, as a as sort of a whole, um, because I, I, I don't think that there's any one or set of things that differentiates dif disabilities from other kinds of things, right? Um, and so on, in my own work, I, I want to, us to talk about uh, specific disabilities rather than disability in general, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and, and so unlike some proponents of the social model, I do think that there are, are some individual disabilities that probably involve bad difference, um, right? So disabilities that involve chronic pain, given the nature of, of the disability. I take it that it's right. intrinsically bad for us to be in, in, in pain that's not indicating bodily harm. Um, and so there might be certain disabilities that do involve uh, bad difference rather than mere difference. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of disabilities that are actually uh, much more accurately described as uh, mere difference rather than, than bad difference. So I guess one of the issues here is when you have sort of a spectrum of a range of capability, um, obviously we don't think that the fact that we're not all uh, Albert Einstein in our ability to do physics. We don't see that as bad for us, right? So there, there's a range of levels of intellectual skills. And uh, I mean, it's entirely possible that Einstein had some something that would today be classified as a disability. Uh, there are people who speculated that perhaps he would have been um, on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. I don't know how how much the, the data they're relying on there is, is good evidence or not. But yeah. there are people who, who've made that. I mean, people make that claim about everyone. Though. So I, I, I've, I've wondered about Aquinas, for example. Um, some of the, some of the, the, what I hear, what I see in the accounts about his lifestyle was like, I've wondered, would he be classified on the autism yeah. spectrum today? And obviously with some things that we call disabilities, there are elevated, abilities beyond what most people have. You've pointed to Williams syndrome as one such example. Williams syndrome increases someone's ability to empathize and engage in trusting behavior, which can have a, a negative consequence in terms of instrumentally good, instrumentally bad, yeah. like, because they can be taken advantage of more easily. You can be trusting the wrong sorts of people. Right, right, right. But it seems like intrinsically that's a good thing. Obviously, you might think it's intrinsically a good thing to have intellectual skills at a higher level. So the question then is, does that mean it is intrinsically a bad thing if it's a lower level? And, and I think you want to resist that. 
Yeah, and, and part of it is I think that at least in sort of our current culture, right, we, we have, uh, or especially current Western culture, again, I think that different cultures think about disability in, in different sorts of ways. And so I want to be careful not to be making a, a more general claim than I think is warranted by my, by my awareness. Um, but I, we, we have this sort of uh, very elevated view about the value of autonomy and independence and not needing other sorts of folks. And if something is worth doing, it's worth doing ourselves, right? And this is sort of like baked into our, I think our national self-understanding in certain kinds of ways. Um, and I think that what uh, certain cases about uh, thinking carefully about disability can show is that that's probably a problematic set of assumptions about right, autonomy, uh, that we don't really make those assumptions in all cases, right? Um, and, and that uh, disability can help us see that our, our well-being, our flourishing is a lot more connected to the communities that we're a part of than, than most of us would like to admit in, in various kinds of ways, right? So um, it might, uh, our, so much of our culture is based on this idea of the value of a person is rooted in their ability to, to contribute economically in certain kinds of ways, right? And so this is what's bad about certain kinds of cognitive disability is that people can't have jobs that make them financially independent. Uh, but most of us don't grow our own food, or if we grow our own food, we grow a little bit, right? We're not actually autonomous in, in terms of uh, lots of our practices, right? But when we think about autonomy in certain domains, financial autonomy or various kinds of, right? We, we, we overly emphasize the importance of, of a certain kind of independence. Um, and one of the things that we don't value about disabled folks is if, if they aren't able to uh, achieve that kind of autonomy and independence that, that we think is sort of the pinnacle of, of human understanding, right? Um, so if I wanna uh, learn physics, um, I'll go read something by Einstein, for instance, but there I'm right, dependent on him uh, in a way that I'm, right, I, I couldn't figure out the general theory of relativity on my own, I just, you know, I had college physics. That was about the, the extent of my physics ability. Um, and, and, and so I think that we're often just inconsistent in how we think about different kinds of uh, domains of our lives. And that, that leads us to, to devalue disabled folks that don't live up to that picture of what a good human life is in certain domains. And, and we don't recognize that most of us, right, are a lot more dependent, a lot more um, interconnected uh, than, than we would like to have to admit. And we, we devalue that kind of de dependence in disabled lives, but we don't recognize right, that, that, that we have a similar truth about our own, uh, our own lives. So the, the question then that I have is, is, is there some level of proper function or, and that's a big term in philosophy of religion that you don't see, you don't see other philosophers ever talking about. But I mean, it, is the social model with the mere difference view pure relativism, where every way of being is equally good? Um, it seems like you wouldn't go that far. You want to say that there are some ways that are better than others. But I think maybe, I guess the idea I'm getting is that you, some ways are perfectly okay. <laughs> There is anything wrong with them, even if there might be better ways to be. And then with other things, there are mere differences. They're just different. Yep. So, so 
uh, our son's underlying genetic condition, uh, for instance, sometimes goes with certain kind of kidney problems that if, right, if, if left untreated, uh, could, could result in serious health, uh, health problems. Uh, or there are uh, certain kinds of uh, uh, heart risks that go with, for instance, Down syndrome, right? And if, if you have a heart valve that allows backflow uh, from the ventricle into the atrium, or maybe it's vice versa, it's been a while for high school uh, uh, biology as well, then, right, I mean, you're, you're at risk of dying. Right, so there are disabilities that uh, carry with them higher risks for certain kinds of, of things that are just bad for human uh, uh, physical functioning. Um, where I think that, and, and, and so I don't wanna say um, that just any way of being is, is equally good. I mean, I do think that there is an objective nature to the good human life and there might be things, uh, not only certain disabilities, um, but they're, they're, but but including probably some disabilities uh, that make it harder or less likely or, or a lot more fragile for us that you uh, achieve those kinds of, of flourishing. Um, but there are lots of other parts of our lives that are also like that as well, right? And and so again, we sometimes treat disability as uh, more different than it really is from other sorts of uh, of our lives. But in other cases, what we value is is maybe a certain kind of good and we're used to the means to achieve that good being one way and the disability might make it hard for us to achieve that means in the usual right. way, but there could be other kinds of ways of, of, of achieve, achieving that good, right? So uh, for instance, I take it that friendship is a fundamental human good, right? Uh, being around people that value you intrinsically and that you value them intrinsically and, and that you're both committed to the flourishing of the other. I think that's a, a fundamental constituent of human flourishing. Um, and what the research suggests is that, uh, un unfortunately, lots of autistics uh, have a hard time developing friendships. Um, but the reason why is because we expect friendships to work on certain kinds of neurotypical models, right? We expect interpersonal interaction to function this way. And so the, the, the kinds of interactions we have with somebody who's on the spectrum uh, might be different, right? Different means to get to that uh, goal of friendship. But for people that are willing to take the time and figure out the new uh, or, or just sort of less common paths to achieve that good, it's not as if autism prevents you from having friendship. What prevents us from having uh, friendships is just that we expect friendship and interpersonal interactions to, to go this way. Right? So I think it's an instance of where we sometimes confuse the, the, the usual means to achieve a certain kind of good with the good itself. And we think that if a disability means you can't achieve that good through the usual path, then you're not capable of, of, of achieving the goal. We just might have to find another way to get to that goal. So one of the common uh, components of autism, I mean, it's, a, it's this terribly disjunctively defined thing where you've got like three of these seven characteristics, you can get the diagnosis, right? But one of the common traits associated with it is, a, is an impairment in being able to identify with others and be able to think from their perspective. Does that feel to you like a mere difference or a bad uh, difference? I, I know that's one of the diagnostic criteria of autism. It's not clear to me that that actually gets um, the nature of autism correct. Um, 
earlier I had said that I, I'm not sure that uh, disability is a single thing that we can give an account of what it is. I actually think this is also true of autism. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's and, certainly and so, true of autism. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, for instance, uh, in in the U.S., there are actually two uh, uh, very influential accounts of the nature of autism that don't line up. There's uh, the account that we use in medical and psychological contexts from the DSM-5 now. Uh, but there's also a different uh, set of criteria for autism that's in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, IDEA, for educational contexts. And, and, the, and the two don't align. It is certainly possible to have autism according to the DSM and not have autism according to IDEA. And I think it's, and, and in fact, I actually know a, a number of individuals for, for whom that's true. I actually think it's in principle possible that you could have autism under IDEA and not have autism under uh, the DSM, uh, right? So whether or not, in, in a certain way, whether or not a, a person is autistic depends on the context and the purpose for which we're asking. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a socially constructed category. We yeah. invented it. There are several underlying neurological conditions that might exp under explain it. Yeah. I would explain why someone gets that diagnosis. They're not the same as each other. Right, and, and so I wouldn't be surprised if in the future, uh, right, what we now classify as autism under the DSM-5 gets sort of like, right, uh, separated into a, a number of different things. And the way that with the transition from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5, Asperger's got folded into the autism spectrum. Right. Um, but there is a long history of thinking that sort of at the root of, of maybe not all cases of autism, but at least lots of cases and, and sort of uh, some of the prototypical understandings of autism is this inability to, to um, take the social position of somebody else, right? This is the mind blindness uh, right. view of autism. And I just think that that fundamentally misconstrues the nature of at least a lot of autism. And again, I don't wanna say that there are no autistic individuals that are, uh, uh, aren't capable in certain contexts of taking on somebody else's position and, and attributing a theory of mind to somebody else. But I think that uh, as a general characteristic of, of the nature of autism, that just gets it It's, it's not wrong. accurate. Yeah. yeah. Now, it, it, in some formulations, it's sort of one of several diagnostic criteria. You wouldn't need it to get the diagnostic, to get the diagnosis. But as I've thought about that particular one, I've thought, well, what, what would be the explanation for that? If that is so, why is it so? Is it, is it, could it just simply be cognitive processing? It, it that's a that's a that's a um, a complex thing, and so maybe that could be done, but it couldn't be done in the way that could be tested, and that kind of thing. Uh, in the same way, I mean, there are these tests where they'll put a dot on your forehead, have you look in a mirror, and if you touch your forehead, they assume that you can you can form the thought that's me in the mirror. And animals that do that, they say, have a self concept. And humans that don't do that, they say they don't have a self-concept yet. And I think that there's so many other explanations for what's going on in those studies. Why do they have to, why do they have to take that that has to be about a self-concept, right? I mean, maybe you just have no interest in doing it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Why, why would I care if there's a dot on my forehead, right? So, so it's, 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 uh, you could, you could imagine a child thinking, oh, that's interesting and then not touching it, right? Yeah. And I think something similar is true. Another common way of thinking about autism um, is sort of the lack of empathy. And, and, and for some folks, the, the mind blindness uh, 
and the lack of empathy are 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 right, in, interconnected. Um, but I think again, it's just false that uh, uh, all autistic individuals, and I think it's it's false for for uh, lots of autistic individuals, um, that they're not capable of having empathetic responses. Right? What the nature of their empathy and how they respond in empathetic ways might look different than neurotypical ways of, of having empathy. Um, but a so many of these tests, right, are looking just for this is the way that having an empathetic response looks. And if we don't see that, then you, right, then then the then the test subject lacks empathy. And I think there that we're what we're often doing is confusing the way that we're used to something being expressed and 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 characterized behaviorally from the underlying uh, thing. Uh, Right, uh, relational claim or emotional claim or cognitive claim that, that is sort of the, the conclusion. And so again, I think that we have a, a pretty robust history of measuring these things badly and, and making uh, assumptions about what autistic experiences are like that are just false, right? In, in part because we have culturally not sought to get autistic input on, on these sorts of things. Um, I mean, it, I, I think it's interesting to ask autistics for their response to the claim that, right, according to science, you lack, uh, lack empathy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and um, you know, they, they typically think that that's just fundamentally mistaken. And I think that, right, we have overvalued certain scientific ways of, of doing things, right? And again, I'm pro-science, uh, but science often makes these assumptions that, that it's not itself sort of holding in check. And so we will default to what the scientists tell us about what autism is like, rather than asking autistics. And we all have biases that prevents us from seeing things from someone else's perspective to some degree. So um, could it be that when that does happen, people are cluing into it in the cases of, of someone with a disability because they're looking for it yeah, when they wouldn't notice it or they wouldn't highlight it in the same way with the rest of us when we do the same thing. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. To, to what what is it that actually goes wrong in the in the, the people who are doing that kind of work? There, there might be several places you could put your finger on where it might go wrong. So, um, but there clearly are cases where people seem to be incapable of moral reasoning, and some of these is just the the, the, the antisocial, psychopathic kind of. Uh, I know what you believe morality is. I just don't see it, right? I don't see why I, I shouldn't take people's stuff and, and hurt them, right? I, I, I think you can see that as a disability. Yeah. And that seems like it's not a mere difference. Yeah. And I, again, I I'm not it's bad for them that they're that way. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so I'm not committed to that there aren't any bad difference disabilities. In fact, right. as I said earlier, I think that there are some. Uh, but but what I think we do is often we we treat uh, even if we got right sort of which disabilities might involve bad difference versus those that don't we then treat uh, disability based bad differences in right in in different ways than we treat other kinds of bad differences. So I just right. think that being a morally vicious person is also a bad difference. Right. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But we treat vicious right. So so we might treat people that um, sort of don't live up to our moral standards uh, uh, 
because of disability just differently than we do uh, what we might just call assholes who don't live up to the same moral standards, right? For, for other sorts of reasons uh, or, or just sort of like brute viciousness. And so again, I, I think that we uh, need to think more carefully about what disabilities do involve uh, bad difference versus mere difference. But we also have to pay attention to how we treat certain kinds of bad differences as relevantly different than other kinds of bad differences when, when, when th th that might just be rooted in something like unfamiliarity or prejudice or other kind of bias. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your, you've got two papers on heaven. And um, you make the argument that because there are some disabilities that are not bad differences, they are mere differences, there's no reason to think that such disabilities would need to be cured in heaven. I think the concept that you're mostly working with is, um, I'm trying to remember your terminology, something about union, union with God, or beatific union with God or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so I'm just thinking about uh, um, uh, what, what going back to uh, Aquinas and some of the medievals was the beatific vision or whatever kind of union with God and through God with other humans that we, we, we take to sort of mark the nature of, of heaven. So if that's sort of the expectation of what heaven is going to be like, the idea then is that someone who, um, someone who's disabled in some way um, to experience, if, if, if experiencing that does not require the removal of the disability, then there's no reason to think that the disability would have to be cured, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Now, you're open to maybe some that would be. Yeah. Um, um, many, perhaps, that would be. But, yeah, but again, I think that there are lots of factors about us that would prohibit uh, that kind of union with God. Right, and, and so we just need to be careful that we are treating uh, different kinds of factors that might get in the way with the beatific vision or union with God uh, equally, rather than making assumptions about, about uh, disability, right? So for instance, um, here's, here's a kind of disability that I don't think necessarily precludes uh, the beatific vision, uh, blindness. And so there's a long history in Christianity of, of thinking about the proper response to blindness as healing. There's a long history of uh, using blindness as a metaphor for sin and moral failure, uh, which I think is, is, is problematic. Um, but if we think carefully about it, right, according to the Christian tradition, God is immaterial. <laughs> And so it's not clear why having a certain kind of sense modality would necessarily be needed for us to be perfectly united with God. Um, now, there might be certain kinds of goods uh, that come from having sight, right? Like being able to recognize beauty in certain kinds of ways within certain uh, uh, spectrum of, of, of uh, light. Right, but humans are already limited in terms of the spectrum of light that we're capable of recognizing. And I don't see folks making the arguments that we have to be able to see infrared or ultraviolet or gamma radiation or something like that for, for union with God. And so blindness is the kind of thing that I think necessarily, right, uh, is, is a kind of disability that in the Christian tradition we have long associated with um, uh, being cured in the eschaton. And I'm not necessarily 
opposed to it, right? I don't know that God would necessarily violate somebody's well-being if he gave them sight, even if they didn't need it. I mean, Jesus um, healed people, right? So if you're, gonna, if you're gonna take those accounts seriously, yeah. you have to think that he wasn't harming them, at right. least, right? He was doing good towards them. But at least from my understanding of, of the way that uh, the culture worked there is that the um, blindness was usually the, the, uh, a reason for certain kinds of social exclusion. And so healing mm -hmm. uh, the individual sight might have been the means to get them back into communities and other kinds of goods. And so even if God healed them for the sake of good fat, right, to, in, in order to be good to them, it might not be that the goodness toward them was directly about their sight, but about the way in which their community would value or respond to them. Um, and so in my view, if there are disabilities that uh, don't detract from human flourishing in union with God, then it, right, then they're not the kinds of things that necessarily would, would have to be healed. Um, and in fact, I think that there's some reason to think that there are some uh, disabilities that don't do that. And there might actually be certain disabilities that um, could contribute to certain kinds of goods, right? And so there might be reasons to think not only that God wouldn't be harming folks if um, uh, they weren't healed or cured. And again, for some disabilities, I don't even know what that would mean, right? Yeah, it's not clear what cured would be for autism. Yeah, I think it's just a category mistake. You've got, you've got several things going on with autism. Some of them are increased ability some of them are decreased or, or lessened ability or under lessened isn't the right word but uh, you might think of it as an impairment of yeah. some sort and and some of them are just mere differences so yeah it's hard to know what a cure would be there and but i think i mean my oldest son i think if, if you could take away his frustration that having increased processing time and things like that i think he'd be happy to have that go away i don't think he would feel like that detracts from his identity and so i mean that's one of the concerns that you do what 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 would be identity forming what would it mean that you would if, if god were to cure this would it mean it the person's no longer there it's a different person right yeah and and i think that so uh there's been a longer discussion of disability in this way in the uh, theological context than in specifically philosophy of religion. Uh, you got folks like Amos Young that have been writing about this since I think about the mid 90s. Um, I can't remember when Young's theology and Down syndrome came out, 93 or 96 or something like that. Um, and I like a lot of that work, but I think that sometimes it's just sloppy in terms of how it thinks about identity, right? So again, here's a place yeah. where I think philosophers are good. Uh, we can differentiate what philosophers think about as numeric identity uh, from something like self-understanding or narrative identity that somebody would give of themselves. Um, and there are lots of disabilities that I think aren't part of numeric identity in the strong sense, right? Namely, I mean, any acquired disability can't be part of somebody's numeric identity or else the person that they were would have numerically ceased to exist when they acquired the disability. Right. Um, but you might have an acquired disability that then matters a whole lot to you in terms of right your narrative self-understanding identity. And you might want that piece of your identity to be retained in the afterlife, even if it's not part of your numeric identity. I mean, this is how I think about my relationship with my spouse and my children, right? Um, I mean, these relationships matter a lot to me. And I think that, um, and again, I, this is speculative theology and I could be very wrong about this. 
Um, but I think that it would be a disservice to me and my lived experience if I got to heaven and I literally did not recognize or have any kind of right, unique relationship with my spouse or my children. It's not part of my numeric identity. I mean, I was, I was in that sense, the same person prior to meeting her, marrying her, having children than I am now. But it has shaped who I am, how I think about the arc of my life, the things that matter to me, right? The, the desires of my heart. And, and so I think that there, um, I want to retain that part of my narrative identity, even if I don't have to retain it as part of my numeric identity. And there might be ways in which disabilities are, are the same way, right? I know a number of disabled folks that, um, have expressed to me that they would, even if God could heal them, again, and for some disabilities, I don't know what this would mean, even if God could heal them, if they wake up in heaven uh, or find themselves in heaven uh, and, and are missing that, even if God could do it, they'd, they'd be upset, right? Because it matters to them in terms of what their life has, has uh, and their life uh, lived experiences have been. So again, here, this is a place where I think that uh, thinking carefully, carefully about different things that we mean by identity is something that philosophers in particular can contribute to some of these discussions. Even if theologians and lay folks and, and folks in other disciplines are, are working with these philosophical topics and philosophical concepts. So I guess the place that I would probably expect more people to try to push back against this is if there's some notion of proper function that includes something that you don't want to include in there. And um, what, what, what is it to be a well-functioning human being? What is, what, uh, obviously you could have the picture that you have of whatever, whatever is needed for the, the kind of union with the divine that the afterlife is getting involved without um, some things that we consider as goods in this life. If there's a notion of this is what we're created to be like, and something of that is not present, obviously seeing in the infrared spectrum is not something that we're created to be like, unless it was a capability we had that we never, <laughs> we, right. that, that, that has been lost or something, I guess, right? Uh, but I mean, it's someone like, a, like an Augustinian or a Thomist would say, would distinguish between um, a, a mere lack something that you don't have and a privation a privation is something that you ought to have that you don't have right I, the fact that i don't have wings and i can't fly that's not a privation because i'm not supposed to have wings that's not part of the intention of human creation so i think maybe they would try to argue that being able to see is part of our intended creation and um it's not part of our intended creation to be able to do what einstein did with physics but it's part of our creation intended creation to be able to have some level of intellectual capacity, mm -hmm. uh, then the question would be where you would draw the line there, yeah. and and so on, and and so I, I mean I think I can I can see a lot of people trying to push back against this by going in that direction. I, I don't think you're in principle opposed to that, right? Yeah, I mean I think I I think that's an important conversation to have, and and it's not like I've got a you know fully worked out theory of human nature and the kinds of capacities and functions we're we're supposed to have. Um, but having that kind of debate about exactly what human proper functioning does involve is a different kind of uh, uh, 
task than making assumptions on the basis of, well, most bodies are like this. And so that's what proper function is. Right. 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 So again, I'm not opposed to that, but there we've got to do a lot of hard metaphysical work about what human nature really is and what sorts of capacities. And if it's a certain capacity that is uh, part of human proper functioning versus this is the way that right the, the proper function is normally recognized versus uh, other kinds of ways of getting at the same kinds of, of goods. And there's a lot of stuff that people write about in that direction that could be helpful in other ways too. And we really need to think about them. And I don't think people are thinking well about them. But I mean, for example, it comes up in sexual orientation and gender issues as well. Right? What 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 is the way we should be, right? And 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 now that I want to get into those right now, but that's 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 a, there's similar kinds of issues that come up there. And where whereas I don't think anyone today wants to say anything in that that direction with something like race issues. I, I, with race issues, at least intrinsically, everyone's going to say they're just different ways of being. If there isn't anyone out there who's saying this is a better way. I mean, there are the really extremists, but I don't think there's anyone in professional philosophy yeah. or in mainstream discourse doing yeah. that with race issues. But you do have those issues going on in a number of other areas that, that uh, I think there's contributions that we as philosophers can make toward that. And, and uh, not that we're all going to go in the same direction probably, but it's, it's something we should be thinking about. And it's, I think, not being done the way it should. I think, I think that's, that's the kind of question that we're not asking. And I wonder if the reason why we're not asking it is because of a, a more absolutist view on mere differences. That, that we don't want to be able to say, this is a better way of being. I, I think at least in some people's minds, maybe that's going on. And, and part of it is there also, I think, outside philosophy especially, confusing the mere difference point with the point of who counts morally. Yeah. Because if you want to say that this way of existing, this kind of life is less good, it doesn't entail that you don't count morally, uh, despite the attempts of some people like Peter Singer to try to make that inference. Yeah. It, it just doesn't follow. And I think there's been an overreaction to bad difference views because they're taken to imply that someone doesn't count because of people like Peter Singer. Yeah. So, and, and I think maybe not just because of Peter Singer. I mean, I, I think just the history of how we've treated uh, folks, yeah, right? Makes right. it easy exactly. to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to do that. And, and so, but the kind of thing he's doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I think that and even though she is known for sort of, you know, promulgating the, the mere difference view um, rather than uh, bad difference view, Elizabeth Barnes, she's not, so far as I can tell, in principle opposed to that there could be, in fact, some disabilities that are bad difference. Um, and I, it's not even clear to me that she's in principle opposed that there are some bad differences, uh, there couldn't be any bad difference physical disabilities. Um, I mean, there are places where uh, her view does uh, force her to draw a, a, a division between an underlying disability and certain kinds of bad health outcomes that come from that disability, right? And, and it's not right. always clear to me exactly how she, you know, pulls these uh, uh, apart. 
Um, but she's taking seriously sort of the literature and the testimony about uh, about this kind of you know so even somebody as as well associated with the mere difference view as as Barnes I don't think is in principle opposed to some of the you know the kinds of conversations that you and I are talking about here on on the kind of work that needs to be done. I haven't read her I haven't read her book as carefully as I'd like to. I've looked at it a, a number of times with intense detail, but sections of it. But I, I know she had a paper, and I assume she doesn't change her mind in the book, where she argues uh, that um, what she's really after is not whether a particular disability is a mere difference or a bad difference, but whether have the mere fact of having a disability is, on the whole, yeah. all things considered, bad for you. And she wants to say it's not. Just the mere fact of having one is not all, all things considered going to be bad for you. But it may be that a particular disability is bad for you. She says that in the paper. Uh, that I think it might have been the first paper she wrote on the topic. Uh, yeah. where, where, where you might argue that, yes, even, even say, blindness would um, be, it, it, there's, there's an intrinsic goodness that you're missing out on because you can't see. But does it necessarily make your life worse? that you are blind, she wants to say no to that. Mm -hmm. Because there's goods that can come with it too. And those might be more definitive of, of a good life than whatever the bad aspect of, of not seeing is gonna be. Joe Campbell and um, Joseph, or, uh, and Stephen, Stephen Campbell and Joe Stramondo have a, a nice paper on the complicated relationship of disability to well-being. And they, uh, like Barnes, are pushing back against what they call sort of the standard view, right? That like all disabilities are intrinsically bad differences. Um, and they differentiate a disability being intrinsically bad versus being um, uh, uh, extrinsically bad um, uh, versus being uh, comparatively bad versus overridingly bad. And so they want right. to, you know, there are certain disabilities that could be bad for you, right? But it's extrinsically bad, not intrinsically bad. They, they allow uh, that there might be some disabilities that are intrinsically bad for us. Um, but they also then say making the, you know, the, the comparative claim that in virtue of the disability, our lives on the whole are worse off is a really hard claim to make because there might be goods coming with certain disabilities as, as we've talked about. Right. And certainly nothing follows from, uh, you know, the other kinds of badness that the, um, that the uh, life on a whole isn't worth living or is a bad life in general, right? So, so I like this paper a lot because it differentiates different ways that a disability could be bad for us. Uh, and, and helps uh, remind us how easy it is for, for us to slide from, well, this is bad in this way to this is bad overall. And I think one of the things that I, you put your finger on in some of your work that I really thought was, was really helpful was looking at what people say about the problem of evil. In the problem of evil, we're often saying things like, there are, uh, yes, this thing is intrinsically bad, other things being equal, you might expect that an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good being wouldn't allow it, but there's other things that come. And, 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 and most responses to the problem of evil recognize that kind of, that kind of thing. And well, if you just apply that here, you're going to get exactly what you're saying. Yep. 
what I want to be uh, careful on in the way that the uh, disability is often treated in the problem of evil is sometimes sort of the good that is taken to come out of disability is a good for other folks and not the person yeah. that, that has the disability, right? This is, right. I've right. got a, a forthcoming book chapter with um, Hilary Yancey in which we sort of look at Swinburne's um, work in philosophy of religion as an example of this. He, he talks a lot about the good of being of use um, and well, first off, he just makes the assumption, I think, in a lot of his work that having a disability is a bad making feature. Um, but it's justified on his view often for goods that go to other people other than the person that has the bad making feature. And I think that both steps of that are, are problematic. And so I think that if you look at the way that disability is most often treated in the uh, philosophy of religion or the problem of evil literatures, it's... it's uh, done in, in right sort of problematic ways. So that's what Hillary and I look at in this paper. Yeah, because you don't think that God would be justifying anything that happens to anyone that's using them as a mere means to an end. And that's precisely how Swinburne is thinking of this. So yeah, um, I've had folks come up to uh, me before. This is somebody that uh, I, I knew fairly well. It was in the Sunday school class I used to uh, teach. And they came up and just said, you know, the, the reason God caused your son to be disabled, right? God created your son disabled was so that you could learn patience. Now, I don't deny that, you know, our son has helped me learn patience. Now, not nearly as much as I should have learned, right? But my daughters have helped me learn patience too. Um, but even if it's true that um, there's something about our son's disabilities that have especially helped me learn patience, right? If, if the, the disability is something that God does to him in order that I can learn the lesson, right? That seems to be a, a problematic kind of in, uh, instrumentalization that I, I don't think we'd be uh, comfortable with in, in lots of other cases. So again, I think that what we often do is, is we treat this kind of instrumentalization differently with respect to disability than we do in, in other kinds of features. Okay, so if you have any thoughts on where you think philosophers should be looking toward in looking at disability, what kinds of questions should they be asking uh, that, that you haven't seen a lot of? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a pluralist, both about philosophical topics and about philosophical methodologies, right? There's, there's actually a, a, a little bit more of a history of folks uh, influenced by the continental philosophical tradition and the analytic philosophical tradition who are looking at disability. Um, and so, you know, most of our conversation, given the nature of our work, has focused on the analytic stuff. Yeah, because that's what we both do. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. Um, you know, but there's there's some now good work coming out on social epistemology and disability that I think is important kind mm -hmm. of work. You've had a lot of work on uh, social epistemology and epistemic injustice that is often focused primarily on issues about race or uh, sex or sexuality. Um, and there's more and more work coming out uh, in uh, focusing on philosophy of, uh, of disability that, that does something similar. Um, I think- and, Yeah, I was just gonna say, they, for people not familiar with that work, the idea there is that we should at least prima facie favor the voices of those who experience something. And so with race or gender or something like that, talk to people who've experienced something, they have insights into it that the rest of us don't have. That can be absolutized in a way that I think you would agree with me can be problematic, mm -hmm. but but it it uh, it certainly is something that we most of the time 
make the opposite error. We don't yeah. we don't listen to the voices of those who are disabled. Yeah, it's a credibility yeah. deficit uh, in Fricker's term. Uh, yeah, Fricker's term. Yeah, we don't we don't grant their testimony as high a value. And there's ways of explaining why we do that. <laughs> yeah. We 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 think that they they don't get something because of their because of their disability. They can't see something. Whereas the reality may be they have insights into things that the rest of us can't see. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's lots of good questions in sort of social political philosophy that right, have implications for disability. Uh, again, not just around resource allocation, um, but I think I've got a, a, a paper on um, how the way that we've set up special education uh, uh, here in the United States uh, might be structurally problematic in ways that I think are worth taking seriously. Um, I think there's a lot of, of work coming out of the pandemic showing how disabled lives um, are in ways that we hadn't noticed before devalued, right? Not only with respect to who gets a ventilator, um, but uh, the ways in which disabled folks for decades have been asking for the opportunity to work from home, for instance, and we could never right, like, oh, that's an accommodation that we can't make. And now the pandemic hits and what do you know? We, it turns out we could have done this. There are all sorts of ways that we've learned how to accommodate people because of this yep. that no one was willing to do before. Yeah, uh, I think we've also seen though the other direction there, the, the distance learning just doesn't work for some people. Yeah. And, and uh, we've been assuming that that's the only thing we could do with those cases. When all of the arguments against having in-person education were prima facie arguments, yeah. there are multiple goods you're sorting out. And at least some school districts have been willing to do in-person stuff with populations like your son or, or one of my sons uh, at a more heightened level than, than other districts have done. And others have been. So some of them have, have recognized the value of doing that. My, my son's been in person four days a week since October, other than when the whole district shut down for a week or two here or there. And, and, and that's good, but why isn't he there on Wednesdays? Uh, and, well, because they, they want the other students out of the building so they can clean the room in between groups. No thought as to his, his room not needing that because they're there every day. Yeah. Right? Just, that doesn't even occur to them. Yeah. That, that, that the argument they use for having them not there on Wednesdays is totally irrelevant in this case. Right. And so he's being robbed of education that day. He can't work, do education from home. Nothing yeah. happens. He needs a one-to-one -one aid and we can't do that. Yeah. We don't have the resources to provide that for him. So our, our son's uh, education online last spring was, uh, last spring was incredibly hard for, for I suspect similar yeah. kinds of reasons. All three yeah. of our kids have been super fortunate to be in person uh, since their school year started again last yeah. August. Um, yeah. But the ways in which we've thought about various kinds of risks and minimize certain kinds of goods that, right, uh, otherwise well-motivated social practices like social distancing and, and, and remote schooling and stuff, uh, right, uh, as you say, those goods might be overruled in certain kinds of cases. Right. And so yeah. I think that, I mean, public policy is a blunt instrument, right? And we've, we've made decisions in ways that haven't always tracked uh, all, the, all the appropriate goods to all of appropriate populations. But at least some of them, it's because we haven't given certain subpopulations much consideration at all. Yeah, right. All right, well, we should wrap up. I know you need to get going and I, I, have, I have a meeting soon too. So um, thank you for joining me. And uh, I think it's been a great conversation. I'm Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I appreciate it.